0: Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge, direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies.
1: You know, sometimes there's a lot of confusion on things like design controls and Human factors and risk and all those sorts of things. And, you know, what do you need to do? And is this human factor stuff? Is this above and beyond things that you do from a design control perspective? This episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast, my guest, Mary Beth Prevatera, Principal Human Factors from HS Design. Dives into the differences and the similarities between human factors validation and design validation. So take a listen and enjoy this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast. This is your host, founder, and VP of Quality and Regulatory at Greenlight Guru, John Speer. And today, I have uh, somebody I feel like I've known for a long time. Uh, somebody I, at least I feel like we're kindred, kindred spirits at the very least. Uh, but Mary Beth Privitera, Mary Beth is a principal in human factors with HS Design. So, Mary Beth, welcome.
0: Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. In. And 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 yes, we are kindred spirits. I feel like we've known each other for a long time as well.
1: It's great. All right. So it's, obviously, the human factors expertise. We're going to dive into that topic a little bit today. And something that I hear uh, a decent amount, I, I suppose, is there's a lot of confusion on this topic. I'm sure you hear that uh, in your rule. But specifically, I think people get really confused about the relationship between design validation and human factors validation.
0: Yes, I hear that often. And, and in fact, it's one of the hottest debates that we have in the committee. I'm currently co-chair of the Amy Human Factors Committee, and it's one of the things that we discuss in terms of best practices of how do we handle the integration of human factors within design control and then the difference between what is design validation and some of the use aspects that get into, involved in design validation versus straight up human factors validation and, and, and what's the go-between. And then that actually leads into, can there be design and human factors validation within a clinical trial? Some of the advanced technologies you don't necessarily have a choice, but to do things in context. So it gets to be a little bit confusing and a little bit muddled.
1: Yeah, so on the podcast, what we try to do is we try I guess, provide tips and pointers and and, uh, helpful information for those who might be trying to tackle this topic. So I I guess before we dive uh, too deep into the conversation, any tips that come to mind?
0: Yeah, um, well, with human factors validation, that, that's your last, um, your last study, and so there's some specific rules around what constitutes a human factors validation. So it might be a good starting point to just kind of clarify what it what it is to do a human factors validation. Um, that yeah. is both an, an, an international standard and it's uh, in the FDA guidance, and the the two of them. Um, I'm referring to IEC six two three six six and then the human factors guidance that the FDA put forward. And both of them have really great rules that you can just follow. And one of them is that you have to do your human factors validation in the actual environment that the product is going to be used. And then you have to have the representative user and that the tasks that you're giving them are based on the relationship to harm. So it all goes back to your risk. Um, So it's typically just in a nutshell, Go into the user's environment, have the users do it, and then have fifteen people. FDA says that you have to have fifteen u s citizens whereas i e c guidelines don't have that strict regimen. so that is in a nutshell, what constitutes human factors validation design validation right. I think has a different different definition
1: okay, so where do you think design validation is different because as you were describing, that, I'm like, all right, that's a criteria for design validation. yep, that's that is as well. So what do you think? That-
0: well, I think so I think when it gets down to it gets down to the what's expected in the audit more so than a distinct difference. So if you were to have um a product that is high risk of harm or injury, they're going they're going to want an audit of the human factor's file. And if it's a low risk product, you may not ever get audited for a human factors file and it would just be expected to be in there. And I think that's part of the confusion is do you separate out your documents between design validation and human factors validation?
1: Right. And you know, and that's that's a a, a topic that comes up from time to time. And I think that you know the the design control regulations, although still confusing for a lot of folks, they, they've been pretty well established. Well, they're in the regulations, you know, like 20.30 from an FDA, because it's pretty well defined in and, and 1345. And, and uh, yeah, I know you mentioned there are standards and guidances on human factors, like IEC 62366. But I think that creates some of the confusion is that, that people don't know how to dovetail or, or intertwine their human factors within their design and development. Practices? Would you agree?
0: Oh, absolutely! Ab- absolutely, I would absolutely agree. Um, and then I think too, because there's a, an amount of confusion, you get inundated with people saying, "Well, you have to do this, and you have to do that," and "Oh, you're missing this," and "Oh, you're missing that." Um, and and I think that that absolutely gets you know further further confusion. And I, I as a rule, I think you have to go back to <clears throat> common sense. What makes sense? And human factors is really all about making a good product design, making the product design, making something that people want to use, making something that they, they can use. So it's it, from a marketing standpoint, it makes absolute sense of why you would do it. When it gets down to the documentation, you could, you could label everything as design validation and have human factors validation in it. The challenge is, is that if you have high-risk product that has, and in your in your risk analysis, you've identified several areas of critical tasks that are, that can cause harm, well, then you need to submit a separate dossier to the FDA, which demonstrates that human factors have been addressed and that the critical tasks as determined by risk are acceptable and that you've mitigated as many as possible.
1: Yeah, and, you know, and, and I'm, as, as we're talking, I'm thinking, you know, uh, I'm I try to be a pragmatist, especially when it comes to what I do and when I do it uh, from a design and development standpoint. So, you know, design validation and factors validation. There, there is some similarities there for sure, and I understand some of the differences as well. But you know, I want to kind of back up to towards. Let's just say when I'm going through the design and development planning efforts, what is it that I can do? more toward the beginning of my project to help put me in a better position for these downstream activities.
0: Yeah, that's also in the in the guidances. They'll tell you that you need to do user reviews before you get to that final validation. And, and that can be, it's very loose in the guidance up there. And I think people don't realize that they need to write it down. So what we often find is that someone will come to us to come to HS Design to to run a validation study. And they may have gone to a conference and they've, they've gotten user feedback, but they didn't write it down. And, and that user feedback, can that's exactly what they want you to do prior to getting to your validation. But that should be written down as, as a study. You can conduct formative usability studies where you're bringing in prototypes and you're having the users review them. And, and that should be part of that, written down, just like your, your design validation. And the the one thing that is different between design validation and and user valid human factors validation is pass fail criteria because it's hard to measure usability. Measuring usability yeah. is a little bit like measuring love. You know, it's not there's yeah. Not it's really got to be past- easy. It's got to be easy to use, right? How do how do you
1: measure that with acceptance criteria?
0: Yeah, and and that's another bone of contention. Um, I think that. We don't necessarily have because um, we'll, go, we'll go following down that path if you have you're going to meet this requirement, then you have a level of acceptance right and and you've got a high degree of variability with your users. i mean even even if you took one homogenous use group, only let's like say anesthesiologists use it. well, not all anesthesiologists have the same skill set. Not all users have the same capabilities; they may have some disability even that you're trying to design for if it's a consumer based product and and that's where it becomes a little bit tricky and there isn't really any one answer that's simple at that point in time when you're looking at it. I will say increasingly when I look at documentation coming from the agencies, they are looking for. Some type of criteria, and it's hard to run a test without criteria because. Um, but it's qualitative in nature.
1: Yeah, well, and then as as we're, you know, I'm, I like to try to solve or, or, and maybe some people might argue put things in a design control bucket. Maybe things that don't always belong in a design control bucket. But you know, kind of the classic example of a user need is something along the lines of, "Oh, my product must be easy to use." And, oh, yeah. you know, if if you capture that, I, I, I get that. It's really hard to address from a design validation standpoint, but that might be the type of user need that you would use your human factors validation to address. You know, of course, you want to put some more definition around that as you go through the design and development process. But, you know, would you agree that when you're capturing user needs that they don't all have to be uh, clearly identify acceptance criteria at least at the user needs stage, would you agree with that?
0: Oh, absolutely, and I don't think that there's a product known demand that doesn't have easy, ease of use as one of their <laughs> fundamental criteria yeah. that's, a, that's a given you know I, I'd like it to be ease of use, but the, the challenge gets to, to be exactly what you pointed out is what defines ease of use and what we as engineers and as designers think is easy to use may be completely and entirely different than what a user group yeah. might be. And inherent in some of the technologies or the advanced technologies, they are hard to use. And and they they're pretty complex systems because what they're trying to do is complex. So it's not inappropriate for it to be a challenge to use and it to be acceptable because that's you know that's what the the technology or the market needs to be now consumer product i think that uh, that that's completely an, an entirely a different story so um i would say that if i if i as a rule trying to define what makes ease of use and that gets to that testing as you go through that design process to improve your your likelihood of success at the end um there's always elements of time there's always elements of fit. Does it fit into their hand if it's supposed to fit into their hand as an extension of the body? Do they understand and comprehend? Does it give them feedback? Um, so there's a, an inherent loop that every product has where you you do something and then the product um, has a reaction to it and maybe it acts. On tissue in a certain way, or it measures something, gives you feedback. It has a ding, um, and that tells you that to do something about it. So, can they understand that? So, you know, time their feedback. Do they know what to do with the signal? Is the signal appropriate for the contact? Those are type, some of the ways that you can define ease of use and put that into your human factors validation study.
1: Well, as we've been talking, and um, I, I feel. Uh, I might be remiss if we didn't maybe give a, uh, the audience a clearer picture of of um, the I guess the continuum or the, the the whole flow of of the types of activities and behaviors that one might be expected to provide as as part of their design and development a- efforts from a human factors perspective. Yes, we've talked about human factors validation, but that's a pretty late stage activity. That's there's kind of a build up to that uh, human factors validation. Can you take a moment and maybe talk about some of the earlier activities that that one might be expected to consider from a human factors perspective? Yeah.
0: So I can start from an. I'll I'll give you an ideal picture, which is very rarely the circumstance because, you know, we don't live in an ideal perfect world, but let's just say that we did. And I think the the perfect um, scenario would be that you would study your users and the, the use environment prior to the onset of a design problem before you tackle it. Almost everyone knows, okay, I want to be in the in a particular genre. Let's say it's um, in the OR or it's a it's a drug for a particular disease state. And you can study the patients. You can study how do they get their medications, how do they get the flow. So understanding all of the elements that could potentially impact that design and defining really who that user is. And by that, I mean, what are their capabilities? What are the typical educational um, backgrounds? What are their physical capabilities? Do they have disabilities? Do they not have disabilities? And truly understanding from a cultural anthropology perspective who your user is. And then what, is the, what are the environment. That, um, that this product is going to be touching. So it's in essence taking a day in the life of your proposed product and looking at what, what are all the elements that it touches? What are all the stakeholders that it touches from the scrub nurse that has to pull it off the shelf or the pharmacist that has to pull it off the shelf to its actual use and delivery and disposal. So taking that perspective, now I can understand my user and I can understand my environment and I can work with what are the criterias? What are the, the fundamental tenets that happen within that user? So does the user always behave in a certain way? Can I look for those patterns that will then impact the design while I'm in that design process? And then... So that's where it starts. That's called contextual inquiry, that whole process and research methodology. Then I start designing something. And here's where a lot of companies really... Um, Are not necessarily paying attention to the standards that are out there. So there's a great standard that Amy has, Amy HE75, that's a design standard. It's the only one in the world that's a design standard. So if I set, say, if I have a hand tool, I can go on that in that design standard and I can look up controls, I can look up feedback, I can look up feedback modalities and see what's going to be the best in terms of overall just human use capabilities. That I can identify in my product design, and that's really where thats truly applied human factors at that point in time, putting it into that design. And then from there, I would go and get users to agree or disagree. Do they? Did I really, you know, apply AT seventy five principles to the design correctly? Is that truly? You know, where are the the falls, the downfalls? Um, And what I haven't mentioned is risk. In there, you can bring it in. Do risk. Um, The other part to do within your contextual inquiry is to do what's called a task analysis. A task analysis breaks down everything from from each step um, into its components of that step. What does the user have to do? And you can do an analysis to say, will the user be able to understand what they need to do next? So once you have a design, you can apply some of the human factors, methodologies, and tools to assess how usable is it? while you're still in that design process before you talk to users. And then you can also go and talk to users. And that can be super casual. But it needs to be written down just to build up that dossier and that evidence that you've considered these user needs along the way. And you considered what the users, their opinions are and, and make changes, because it's easier to make changes earlier rather than later. And then that builds up into your final summative usability Um, Or your human factors validation study, so that's in the ideal space. And I find typically there's compromises along the way because I think product development is a series of compromises of what do we have and how can we meet our budget and our timing um, considerations.
1: All right, that's a really good summary. So, just a couple of uh, myths or myths. We'll we'll go into a round of myth busting, uh, so to speak. So. um, and, and this is, I've never done this before in the Global Medical Device Podcast. So first, um, myth uh, or, or truth, I guess you decide. Uh, I have, from a human factor standpoint, I have to do something that's completely orthogonal and separate from my design history file and from my risk uh, management file. Truth or truth? That's,
0: that's myth, 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 myth. It's to be integrated, but you do want to put a little special marker on there. You do want to be able to, if I, you want to have it just be a little clearer on if I was to be audited. I don't think, if it's a class one product that's low risk, it's not significant risk by an IRB, and you can, you can judge that based on your risk analysis, then integrate the whole thing. There's no reason to have something separate. If it was high risk and I'm going to have to put a dossier together, you need to earmark it because you will have to, you have to know what those documents are.
1: All right. So first, I want to r- remind you of talking to Mary Beth Privatera. She is a principal human factors at H.S. Design. You can learn a whole bunch more about H.S. Design by going to hs-design.com. A really great firm and a partner of ours at, at Greenlight Guru. And while we're talking about human factors and design control and risk, I want to remind you all that Greenlight Guru, we have an EQMS software platform designed specifically for the medical device industry by medical device professionals. And certainly when you're dealing with design controls and human factors, those are all activities that you can manage, including the traceability of these activities all within the Greenlight system, and yes, uh, the point that Mary Beth just made about being able to tag or, or flag human factors items, that's absolutely part of the workflow in the green light system. All right, so the next um, myth, and it sounds like somebody is happy in the background, so... Uh,
0: <laughs> I uh, apologize for that. <laughs> <laughs> that's
1: okay, uh, but um, the next myth is not every device requires human factors. Is that truth or is that myth?
0: Not every device requires human factors. I go with that's a myth. I, I, have, I have no idea why you, you would ever want a product that's not usable. If it's not usable, no one's going to want to, to buy it. They may love the technology. So from my perspective, which obviously has a, you know, a very biased approach, every product should have usability in its considerations.
1: All right. So um, a couple other things I thought we could cover to, uh, before we wrap up today's podcast. The first thing that, I, that you mentioned uh, earlier is about having uh, basically a, a group of users involved in your human factors validation. And I, I was reminded of a conversation that I had earlier this week with a, uh, a product development expert. And, and we talked a little bit about that topic uh, specifically, a lot of startups uh, these days seem to have been started by maybe the inventor or entrepreneur or a researcher, and in many cases they may even be that key opinion leader. They may be, uh, you know, the, ha- have a, a very vested interest in the product, so you know a lot of their activities have a bias towards what they believe to be right or based on their their own personal experience and that sort of thing, and. And uh, there's some flaws in that and and that's what i like liked about what you said having a broader group use the product. Don't just focus on a key opinion leader. Can you maybe elaborate on that a little bit?
0: Yeah, sure. So you know, I think if you opened up any product development book, um you'd find that knowing your user and understanding from a you know very, very broad perspective, that's what they say to do uh, you know it just opens up the door and and I, I I do enjoy um, working with key opinion leaders and and having them influence the design. and I think that they are absolutely important. They're amazingly critical. I always say that you need kind of three types of people to evaluate your design when you're in product development. You need an innovator, somebody that's a forward thinker, and that's typically your key opinion leader. they they're they they are on it, they are committed to it. And, and they love it. But you also need a judger. You need somebody that no matter what you bring to them, they're going to hate it. And that's typically not the same person as your innovator, that, that key opinion leader. They aren't looking at it with the harshest of criticisms of, no, I will never use that. That's a dumb idea. I can't believe it. And you want to talk to those people and engage them in a conversation is to say, why? Why do you have that opinion? Because If you understand why they have that opinion, then you can make a better design. And then there's a host of people that are just sort of on the side, a sideliner. So innovators, judges, and sideliners are who you need to talk to when you're developing your product just so that you can get a very, very broad opinion. So a sideliner person might be just somebody that's waiting for a peer-reviewed journal to come out that says this is going to work, that they don't want to be the first adopter, but they don't want to be the last one either. And you want to understand their motivation. So taking them into... Taking all of those viewpoints into consideration there's roles for the key opinion. The other part about a key opinion leader is usually they're really, 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 really good. And you want to design for the people who are less good.
1: Yeah. I'm uh, reminded of a, a project we worked on a few years ago. I say a few, it was probably like 15, maybe. <laughs> maybe more like 18 years ago. But anyway, uh, a few years ago, and the device uh, was... Uh, um, yeah, I worked for a company where a lot of our products that we we developed were physician invented, you know, and oftentimes one of those key opinion leaders. On this particular product, it had a component that uh, of the device that um, we, it was a little tricky to understand. You probably re- required um, a, a lot of skill to be uh, really adept at using that particular uh, feature, and we started getting some feedback from some users after we launched that uh, users were struggling with that particular component. And it was surprising to us because the work that we had done to get the product to market, especially on the and, and this is, you know, early days of human factors. I don't even know if we, we coined the term at that time, but um the uh The key opinion leader was pretty much involved with all of the valid a lot of the validation activities, which you know, looking back, a lot of flaws in that methodology. And so we contacted that key opinion leader. He's like, "Oh yeah, that thing, that thing is a problem all the time. I usually just do this, this, and this." But he didn't give us that feedback, you know. And so we had to make some design modifications very much after the fact. And so you know, those are some challenges. The other thing I like about what you said about the judger. Um, that seems like a person I want to talk to pretty early on and not when I'm doing design validation and human factors validation. Yeah.
0: yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And and I think that we know who those you know, you you recognize immediately, you know, someone with those those personality traits or those that, that that's their that they're grumpy that day. You know, that's a that's a happy person to talk to for product development because in order for you to advance design, you need to have a negative conversation, which is the antithesis of sales. So don't bring your sales reps along with you, but um, you know, certainly get people that are truly interested in evaluating that design from a very free and open perspective. It'll, it'll only make it better.
1: Yeah, and folks, so do that early. I mean, you don't have to have final product to, to get the feedback from these different user groups. Uh, in fact, yes. I would encourage you to, you know, once maybe even just having a concept, you find those judges early so that you can better design your product and use the users throughout the process. I think sometimes we get conditioned to only involve the end users of our product at certain stages and oftentimes late stages of the product development process. My advice to you is to try to incorporate user feedback throughout your entire design and development process. Challenging. Yeah. Um, folks like folks like Mary Beth and HS Design can certainly help uh, facilitate that. So to lean on on experts like Mary Beth for that. The um the, and I let you uh, you say it earlier and just kind of glossed over it, but I want to revisit it because I, I think sometimes we um, we're looking for black and white answers as far as well how many of this and how many of that. And you were very specific with the number about how many of. Uh, uh, people need to be involved in a human factors validation. You said 15. What is 15 all about?
0: (laughs) That's a good one. If you go to FDA guidance, there's a whole statistical justification for the number of 15 in the human factors guidance that the agency put out for us. Um, It's also in 62366. And In a nutshell, I think that that's where you get some statistical relevance, Um, and it has to be 15 homogenous users. That's the only spot in the guidance that tells you the number of users. So to your point, you said, um, you know, we and we agree, There our kindred spirit coming out that you should involve the users throughout the process. It doesn't tell you how many users you should involve early. It only tells them how many you should have at the validation point because you're not making any changes. At the, at the end of a validation study, when you do your residual risk analysis, you're really only going to be able to change instructions for use training at that point in time, or that's where you should be. If you have to have a design change because something has gone awry, then you know, you're know you back and you're going to have to revisit your validation study and, and retest at that point in time. So there's no magic number up until that point. And, and to your point, going out and talking to users, you don't have to be really, really formal about that approach. In fact, being informal is helpful because you want to engage them in a conversation of what improvements do you like? And if you're very formal about it, people like to please each other. So they may not give you as harsh a criticism if you're in a formal study because they want you to do well. Um, So you want to have it to be casual. You want it to, you know, you can take out prototypes. Those prototypes might be on paper. They may be conceptual designs. They may be rough or they could be a, a virtual experience where you have them walk through something that's, you know, gone through extensive design just makes it a little bit more, you might have a more difficult time making design changes at that point in time. So the magic number 15 is what the guidance says. And and I think it's somewhere, although I haven't been able to find this reference, but when I was in design school very early on, there was a very old, wise professor that said, patterns of behavior are going to show themselves right around seven opportunities and then be confirmed, seven, seven to nine opportunities, and then they'll be confirmed by 12, but that's not... I haven't been able to find that in a reference, so so don't don't hold me to that. But that tends to be true, that you'll see a pattern of behavior somewhere between seven and nine, and then it'll repeat itself by the time you get to 15. So that's how I interpret their, their statistical number, and that's how they get to that. Doesn't mean you need to do 15 users all the time, though.
1: As you were sharing that that bit about where fifteen came from, I, I was thinking, you know this is where I think human factors, if there's such a thing, this is where human factors gets a bad rap because my experience, mostly you know from the outside looking in, I see a lot of companies that I don't want to say they forget about human factors, but they don't give it its proper due diligence throughout the entire design and development process, and then they they're quickly approaching. Uh, submission or, or something along those lines you know critical milestone and then realize oh crap got to do some human factors so let's do let's try up and do this this sort of thing they d- didn't put the, the thought of human factors into earlier stages in the development they get to that human factors whether that be the validation setting or some other type of activity and they find out oh my gosh we got to make this change and that change and this change. And so now yeah. they're really yeah. thrust back into earlier phases of development and they have to you know, spend more time, more money, things are delayed. And you know, the, the curmudgeon engineer is like, oh, it's because I have to do like human factors stuff. And it's like, whoa, time out, buddy. It's bring in the human factors earlier. And not that these later stream activities become Trivial, but my goodness, find out the where the gotches are as soon as you can rather than waiting to do so very very late in that process
0: yeah and i I'll, I'll go on, I'll just build on on that um example. Let's just say that they went ahead and and they did the human factor study, didn't perform very well, and they wrote a nice narrative to submit to the agency to you know a nice narrative to wrap it up, and they go ahead and they go to market with it. At the end of the day, all the use errors that they saw in that study are going to be the use errors that the then um, customer relations office, your, uh, you know, your adverse events. That's what they're going to get back. So it's a you can just see eye for eye, you know, one to one relationship between what do users do when they have that product? Because there's no instruct, there's other than the training that you would normally provide. Um, you know, that's part of the, the the validation study is that you provide the level of training that they would get. So if it's none, they get no training, and then they they rely on those instructions for use. And you know they may completely and entirely misconstrue something, not understand something, and that will that will um, increase your customer complaints. So you can some of the lower risk products where you're not necessarily paying too much attention to the human factors, let's say you didn't do it and then you did your validation study, you came up with some errors, but maybe they weren't egregious, you can just plan on that that's what you're going to get the calls about.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, and that uh, would that be the, the final word on today's podcast. Mary Beth, thank you so much. Uh, I really enjoyed this conversation about the relationship between design validation and human factors validation. So, so thank you so much.
0: Thank you, John. Best of luck.
1: All right, folks. <laughs> Absolutely. So, folks, if you want to learn more about human factors, the do's, the don'ts, I would encourage you to reach out to Meredith Privitera. She is a principal of human factors at HS Design, HS-Design.com. And as I mentioned earlier, and, and we'll share with you again, yeah. be sure to go to Greenlight Guru, www.GreenlightGuru to learn more about the Greenlight Guru EQMS medical device specific software platform and, and will help you through your design and development activities including human factors and risk and design and control so you should check that out thank you for listening as always this is your host the founder and VP of quality and regulatory actor, Garo, John Speer, and you have been listening to the global medical device podcast